Matthew chapter 6, we're looking at the uh, disciples' prayer, or the Lord's prayer, as it's more commonly known. And uh, we're looking at the aspect of it that deals with our pardon. And uh, I just want to read it for us and follow along in your Bibles. In this manner, verse 9, Therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And I want to continue on in verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Uh, one thing that uh, we looked at last week, we began to look at God's um, pardon that he talks about here in uh, verse 12 that uh, it says, forgive us our debts or our sins. And last week we, we looked at four basic principles talking about sin and forgiveness. And uh, we, we first of all dealt with the problem of sin and we said that sin is something that touches everybody's heart. It's not just for the down and outers. It's everybody that is born has had to deal with sin sooner or later in their life. And the Bible says that even from the womb we're conceived in sin. So it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's a universal thing. We all have the problem of sin. And if you don't realize it, it won't take you too long for somebody else to point that out to you. Um, because we're all sinners. We all need God's grace. And uh, we, we need to understand that. And we looked at different words for the meaning of sin and, 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 and things like that. But you can get that tape or look at that on your own. But as we turn to this this morning, last week we began to look at the second of these three petitions. The first one dealing with God's provision or physical substance. And then this next two in the second half of this prayer deal with our spiritual uh, dealings. And the first one deals with uh, this petition that says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And uh, we all understand that we need uh, forgiveness in, to some degree in our lives. And uh, last week we looked at the idea of forgiveness being a judicial fact, the judicial aspect of forgiveness, that God has forgiven us judicially. We have a right standing with God based on all that Christ has done for us when we come to the cross and we say, hey, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe he died, he was born that he died, he was raised from the dead, and uh, that he died for my sins. And we personalize that, we accept that by faith. The Bible says that at that point in time, your sins have been forgiven. That's judicial forgiveness. It's dealt with the problem of sin. The debt you owed is no longer on your account. Somebody has paid it for you, that person being Jesus Christ. And so we looked at the whole aspect of judicial forgiveness. That it's something that happens at a point in time, and it has ongoing consequences. You don't continually, we are not continually judicially forgiven every day. If you go down to the courthouse and you get a traffic ticket and you go before the judge, and the judge looks at the circumstances and says guilty, well, that's it. You know, you pay the fine, you do whatever you have to do. But you can't, you know, you, you can't kind of wiggle your way out of it. That's judicial, you know, uh, the writing of the law, that's what happens. Uh, if you go down and he says, you know what, I've looked at the sermon, you're not guilty. 
The officer can't say, well, I'm sorry, you know, we're going to do this again until we get it right. It doesn't work that way. And so we, we have to remember that in Christ, the Bible says that we have been forgiven. It's something that's done. It's not something that's ongoing. And so it's so important to understand that. Because when, we, when God forgives us, we have to first recognize our need of that forgiveness. And to recognize our need of that forgiveness, you first have to recognize that you have a problem called sin. And sin is the reality not only in the person who hasn't come to Christ, okay? Those who haven't come to Christ, obviously, they have a bigger problem with sin than those who do because their sin is not paid for. Their sin has not been dealt with. It hasn't been paid for on the cross because they haven't come to the cross. And so it's very important to understand that. But as a Christian, don't ever think that after you become a Christian, you know, you, you come to Christ and you turn your life over to Christ and, boy, you've had this experience and God's maybe freed you and healed you from some, some things and you're starting your new life in Christ. And what happens within the first week? Probably within the first day. Maybe within the first hour of your newfound salvation. What happens? You sin. It's your nature. It's the bent that we have. We sin. We're sinners saved by God's grace. And that sin brings judgment because we're guilty. And it's, it's, it's interesting that God sees that and he says, you know what, that's the problem, but I've provided for that. I've provided for your sin. I provide a way out of your sin, a way uh, to cover your sin, to pay for your sin because you can't do it on your own. I've provided a way for it through Christ, through my son, Jesus Christ. And you look in, in this small little prayer, these several verses here, you see the word forgiveness several times. Because that's God's provision for our sin problem. You see it first in in verse 12. You see it twice. Forgive us as we forgive others. And then you jump down to to verse 14. You see it twice there. Then you see it twice in verse 15. It's a very important principle that Jesus is trying to get across to folks. Six times the word forgiveness happens in this small couple verses. And principle number one is that we have the problem. The second idea is that he has provided a way for us out of the problem. So we looked at the aspect of God's judicial forgiveness. See, it was on the basis of Christ's death that forgiveness is available to us at all. If Christ never would have went to the cross, we would have still been in our sin. There wouldn't have been a way out. And so when we realize as a non-believer, as someone who's outside of Christ, that we have a sin problem, we need to get it dealt with, the place to go is to go to Christ. You don't go to a psychiatrist. You don't go to the doctor. You, you go to Christ. And you say, look, you've revealed to me that I need your mercy. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. That's not, a, that's not an unmanly thing to do. That's, 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 that's a very wise thing to do. It'd be like being diagnosed with cancer and saying, oh, well, I don't care. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not even going to go back to the doctor. That would be stupid, to be frank. Because, I mean, you know, God is the, 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 the one who appoints your days, but he's also given doctors 
incredible technology and things that can maybe sustain those days. So maybe, you know, your, your life is sustained by going to a doctor because you've been diagnosed with cancer and, you know, you see you have a problem, so you need a provision, you need a, a, a healing. And sometimes doctors provide that. Sometimes they don't. But sometimes they can sustain your life. And if they sustain your life, maybe your life is sustained for a couple of weeks to just touch somebody else's life for Christ. You don't know. But the idea is, is that when we come to Christ, he wants to forgive us. He wants to forgive us. And so you have to at first admit that there's a need there. You have to come to terms with your own sin. And when you do, you look at the first aspect of judicial forgiveness. The moment you bow your knee to the cross, the moment you come to Christ with a humble attitude and you say, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm a sinner. At that point in time, you are forgiven for everything, past, present, future. Can you imagine if, if only God only forgave part of your sin? And he said, okay, I'm going to forgive everything from up to this point. From now on, you're on your own. And if you sin again, well, too bad. You have to go to hell. What good would that salvation be? I guarantee you probably none of us could go throughout a day without some form of sinning before the Lord. And so we have to remember that God has declared us. It's a declaration from him. It's not us. We don't get saved and say, now I'm sinless. Now I'm perfect. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, when I look at you, I do not see your sin any longer. I see the righteousness of my son because you've put yourself in Christ. You've come to Christ. And he has covered your sin, the Bible says. He's, he's made you white as snow. He's, so when, when God looks at us, he doesn't see sinful Steve Converse down there trying to trudge out the, 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 the Christian life every day. Sometimes being successful, sometimes failing miserably. He sees the righteousness of his son because we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. That happens when you're saved. You put on Christ. Those, his righteousness, it says, is imputed to you. It's given to you. It's put upon you. See, we're not saved because we have any righteousness of our own, right? I mean, there are people in the church that think they're saved because they're righteous. <laughs> But they're sadly mistaken. As we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, the first thing you have to have is what? A humble heart. You have to have a broken spirit. You have to come before God and say, you know, I'm a mess. Help me out. I've shared this before, but I talked to a pastor one time. He was a pastor down in Oceanside, California, and he was actually an ex-Marine and went into ministry and had a little church there. And I said, well, that must be kind of neat to see, you know, you're reaching out to these, these recruits and all this stuff. He goes, oh. he goes it's, it's, it's kind of miserable, to be honest with you. And he said, these poor kids are so confused. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, they graduate from high school. I'm going to go become a Marine. And they, they walk into boot camp, you know, and they think they're strutting their stuff. And in boot camp, you know, basically they wear you down until you think you're almost less than a worm. And then they begin to rebuild you the way they want you. So, you know... But, Right after the first week of boot camp, man, they're, 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 their life is over. I mean, they're in misery. But by the end of boot camp, man, they're, they're, they're decked out in their uniform and they're thinking there's something. They come out to Camp Pendleton, their first assignment, or maybe where they're going somewhere, and they walk into his church and he says, you're nothing but a worthy, you know, worthy or an unworthy sinner, and you need God's grace. And they're like, what are you talking to Marie? You know, and, and they're so mixed up. 
But see, you can't come to Christ when you have a proud spirit. He gives us any righteousness that we have. It says the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. God drops the the gavel of his sovereignty and says, that's it, you're righteous at that point in time when you come to Christ. Because we realize that we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's righteousness. And so we have to turn to him. And he hits the table and he says, you know what? You are declared righteous in Christ. And if you want to argue with God about that, go ahead. But I'd personally rather not. But it's an absolute positional truth that's just as eternal as God is eternal. It can't be changed. It's forever. It's inviolable. It's just, it's, that's the way it is. That's what the Bible says over and over and over. That's why in Romans 8, it says, no one will ever separate us from the love of Christ. No one. Nothing. No one can ever lay a charge against God's elect. What does that mean? That means you've been declared righteous. No one can point to you and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, you, you did this. or you. It doesn't matter. Because in God's eyes, he sees the righteousness of Christ put upon you. Now, does that mean that you go out and live however you want? Because your sins are forgiven and God doesn't see my sin anyway, you're saying, so I'm just going to go out and do whatever I want? No. Because as a new believer, as someone who's in Christ, you should want to please Christ with your life. You should want to you know, use your life to, to worship him for his praise and glory. And as you do that, you're going to be a reflection of his life and his righteousness. If you go out and, and, and just you know, go off the deep end, and Sunday you're sitting in church, and, and you know, midweek you're, you're ripping off businessmen, and you're, you're, you're in bars and everything else, well, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're compromising your testimony. And God will deal with you. And if he doesn't deal with you, you're probably not one of God's children. So you need to relook at, did I really get saved? But it's important to understand that in this prayer, he's not necessarily talking about that kind of judicial forgiveness. He's talking more about the second kind that we're going to look at today, parental forgiveness. Look at the very first verse in the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer. It says what? Our judge? No. It says our father. So he's focusing in here on a parental kind of forgiveness. I say that because some people believe that this prayer is written with unbelievers in mind. That it's written to unbelievers. Jesus is trying to show unbelievers, well, how you got to come to us? So you got to ask him for forgiveness. No, it's not. It's written to those who have trusted Christ for their salvation. It's written for those who are righteous in God, in Christ, that are part of his family, that are part of the church. Because he says, our father. You can't call God your father if you haven't come to him through Christ. The Bible makes it very clear. There's only one way. There's only one mediator between God and man. Only one. It doesn't say there's a couple. Pick one. No, it says there's one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. You can't work your way into heaven by doing good deeds. You can't give your way into heaven by giving everything you have to the poor or the church. You can't, you know, you just can't do it. You can't do it by going into ministry and thinking somehow you're going to earn your way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus said that over and over and over again when he was here. And so we want to look at God this morning as a loving father, as a father who looks down on us, not as a 
judge. But as believers, he looks at us as our father. And that's different. You know, it's different if you're a teacher in a classroom with a bunch of kids and they need discipline. You're not their parent. So you're going to exact the punishment that whatever required, you're just going to do it. But when it comes to your own child, you're still going to exact that punishment, but there's all of a sudden, what? An intimacy to it. There's all of a sudden an attachment there. Why? Because you're their parent. You're their mother, your father, their father. And so there's, there's kind of a different way of dealing with it. We all, you know, with, with our kids at times when they've done something wrong, we know what happens. You know, when they disobey or they, they go out and do something embarrassingly stupid or something like that, it, it, it reflects on us. And, and so what's it do? It affects our relationship. It doesn't make them not our daughter or our son. They're still that. They, they still look at us. They may hate us at the time. We're disciplining them. But you know what? We're still mom or dad. You can't change that. And so parental forgiveness doesn't deal with necessarily a change in that relationship. But when we sin, something happens to our relationship with God as believers. The relationship doesn't end. He doesn't say, oh, you've sinned, that's it. Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient. That's not the case because we've been forgiven in Christ. But it does affect our relationship with him. It affects the intimacy. Just like it does when you were little and you did something wrong and mom, mom said, you wait till your dad gets home. You tell me that didn't affect your relationship? It did. It affected the whole household probably. But you were still their daughter. You were still their son. I mean, even in our marriages, you know, I mean, I love my wife more and more each day. And, you know, we're growing in our relationship with each other. And it's getting better every day. But you know what? There are days when we look at each other in total frustration and in total anger, to be honest with you, and we're just upset with each other. But at those times, that doesn't change her from being my wife and from me being her husband. See, that, that it's still there. That's a fixed thing. The unfortunate thing with our society is people get in that situation and they yeah, I just want to check out. So they think that they have the authority just to go to a judge and have this certificate, whatever, and, you know, they're on with whoever else. You know, marriage has come down so far in our society. I mean, I really want to encourage you to go out this this fall and vote for the protection of marriage. I mean, you may say, well, what does it matter? It matters. You attack the family. You attack what God had created to be the base of our society. And you're going to see things happen that you wouldn't believe. Because it's just going to snowball. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, you're going to have same-sex marriages being forced in churches. And if you don't do it, then all of a sudden, it's going to be, oh, well, you know, you're going to lose your tax-exempt status. And, you know, you go to jail and for hate crimes if you preach against homosexuality. I mean, it's going to continue. See, the whole, the whole way they got all this... To the point that it is that, that same-sex marriage can be, can be done now in California. The way they did it was they went before the court and they said, well, this is, it's not a, a you know, a, a marriage thing, okay. It's more of a, a, a social thing. I mean, you know, if you're not going to recognize them, that's just as bad as, you know, black and white. 
as mixed marriages, and, and they put it on the same plane. It has nothing to do with each other, but the judges bought it. And that's how they got to the point what we are today. And so come November, when that ballot is passed around, and you know, if you're not registered to vote, I would encourage you as a Christian, you better do it. Okay, before God, because it's a very vital thing. This could turn the whole of society upside down if this thing doesn't go God's way. Obviously, it's going to go God's way, whatever way it goes. But I think we should do everything we can to make our voice heard because we need to protect the institute of marriage. And so when God looks at us in his family, he looks at us as a loving father, who sees us, hey, and, you know, we got sin in our life, we got problems, whatever it is, this is not a prayer for an unbeliever praying for salvation. Please forgive me. That's not what it is. It's a believer coming back, to, coming to God and saying, man, you know, forgive me my sins. And you say, well, if you're saying our sins are already forgiven, why do you have to, why do you have to ask God for forgiveness? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we just stated that it's almost kind of a, a reaffirmation of that forgiveness. Same reason that today in America, you know, we probably all don't go without daily bread. We don't wake up in the morning and go to the cupboards, and there's nothing to eat at all, and get on our knees and go, God, please just send me a loaf of bread. I'm starving. That doesn't happen in America usually, generally. It probably doesn't happen here in our society. I mean, I'm sure there's places in the United States that it happens. Don't get me wrong. But, I mean, we live in a pretty affluent society here, and I'm sure that most of us have the means to a piece of bread. So he wasn't talking about that. He's talking about, you know what, just going to God and saying, thank you for providing our daily sustenance, whether it's bread or whether it's a filet mignon, whatever it is, it comes from the hand of God. And that's the same idea when we get to verse 12. He's saying, basically, you know what? He's confirming, God, thank you for your forgiveness. We're talking about the forgiveness that gives us the fullness and the joy in our Christian life. See, as believers, when we're living a Christian life and we have unconfessed sin, we're we're doing something that we know does not please God. And we continue to do that thing without going to God and asking for his forgiveness and asking for his help. It takes the joy, it sucks the joy out of your Christian life. It just makes you miserable. Turn over to Psalm 51, what we just read. It's a good illustration of this. Psalm 51. Here's David. You have to understand, David is redeemed. He's saved. We talked about this a couple weeks ago too. How were people saved in the Old Testament? They were saved the same way we're saved today. They weren't saved any different way. The only difference was they were looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking back. We're looking back to the cross. They were looking forward. But when they believed God, it was accounted to them. It was reckoned to them as righteousness, the Bible says. And so they were saved the same way. They weren't saved by their works. They were saved by having faith in God. Someone asked somebody one time, on one of those question and answer things on TV with the pastor, they said, if I die before I, 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 or if I sin and I die before I get my sin confessed, what happens to me? He says, well, you go to hell. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Are you telling me if I sin today and I don't confess it and I die and, you know, I'm driving home my motorcycle, I hit my Mack truck and I'm dead, I'm going to hell? That's what it says. That's what the Bible says. 
What a terrible, terrible thing to teach somebody. I mean, where would the Christian life be if that were the case? What kind of joy could you have? What kind of, you know, what kind of relationship would you have with God if you knew that he was just up there with a big hammer just waiting for you to sin so he could squash you like a bug? I mean, that would be horrible. There would be no joy in that kind of a relationship. And the Bible doesn't teach that. What he's talking about here and what he's talking about here in, 50, in, in Psalm 51, he's talking about losing his joy. He's not talking about losing his salvation. He's talking about losing the intimacy with God. David was saved. He knew that. He received Old Testament salvation. It was imputed to him. His account, righteousness, he knew that. He believed God. It says he loved God. He trusted God. His faith was in God. He received redemption for his sins. All this stuff went on in David's life. The righteousness of Christ was future, but it was still there because God transcends time. And this poor guy fell into terrible sin. I mean, he committed adultery and then he committed murder. And I think that if probably it would have been anybody else other than the king, he would have been executed for what he did. But he was kind of above the law in that way. And even though his sins were horrible... He was spared because of his position. But I want you to notice something in this prayer. Look in verse 14, in Psalm Psalm 51, verse 14. He cries out to God and he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. And then he says what? The God of my, what? Salvation. He affirms his salvation. I mean, he's dealing with a major set of sins here, beloved. You know, we're not talking about having an argument with your wife. I mean, we're talking about cheating on your wife and then killing somebody over the whole thing. That's that's pretty heavy duty. And he cries out to God and he affirms his salvation. He says, oh God, thou the God of my salvation. Because he knew God was present there. He knew his spirit was there. He knew where his salvation was. It was in in God. He was redeemed. He was saved. And God was still there in his presence. And I know what you're thinking. But we're going to get to that. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Look down at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. You see, in a sense in which judicial forgiveness is is this one time happening when you come to Christ, you trust in God, he forgives you, period. Well, parental forgiveness is different. It's just different. David was saved, but there was something between him and God that made him to lose the meaning of that salvation. He was still saved. 
The Bible is clear on that. But he says in verse 8, make me hear, what? Joy and gladness that the bones which, which you have broken may rejoice. See, what did he want in this relationship? He wanted back the joy that he had. That's what was sucked out of him when he did these horrible sins and he didn't go to God in confession. He wanted the joy back. In verse 10, he cried out and he said, Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. In verse 12 is kind of the, the, whole, the whole capstone on the whole thing. He says what? Restore to me my salvation. Is that what he says? Because somehow I lost it by my sin? No, he doesn't say that. He says, restore to me the joy, right, of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. What's he doing? He's affirming his salvation. He said, I know I'm still saved, but man, I sure don't feel it. Have you ever been there? You ever been to a point in your Christian life where you know you're saved, judicially, you know, because Christ has saved you, you came to the cross, you've seen him change your life, but you know you're going through a spell in your life where just things aren't right. And you don't feel saved. That happens. Well, what, what's the cause of that? There's, there's something wrong. There's some sin. There's something going on in your life that's not pleasing to God. And you need to come to God and ask him to renew the joy of your salvation. He says, restore the joy of the salvation. See, here's the point. Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation. It's a fact. When you come to Christ for forgiveness, you're, or you come to God as it was in the Old Testament, anticipating Christ, you were forgiven. That's judicial forgiveness. It's complete. It's past, present, future. It's, it's eternal. Nothing can change that because God is the judge who lowered the, the, the gavel and said, you are declared righteous in Christ. Judicial forgiveness takes care of the fact of salvation. Parental forgiveness takes care of what? Takes care of the joy of our salvation. Parental forgiveness takes care of the joy. That happens when our, when our children sin. They sin against us. They disobey us. What happens? They don't just magically all of a sudden they're not our kids. They're still our kids. Sometimes we look at it and go, ah, how unfortunate. You're still my child. And, you know, look at this mess you've created. And we got to deal with it. And as you deal with it and you deal with the discipline and you deal with the forgiveness, what happens? Joy comes back to that relationship. See, when people don't deal with those hard things in their relationships, well, then there's no joy. That's why a lot of people, you know, in life, they go through life and, boy, you know, you, you say, well, you know, do you have, do you have mom and dad? Well, I haven't talked to them in years. Why? Long story, but you know, it's been 20 years. It's just like, what? That's not right. Especially as believers. You know, somehow the joy was sucked out of that relationship at some point. And it could have been by their doing. They could have been a horrible father or a horrible mother, whatever it may be. But parental forgiveness takes care of the joy of our salvation. See, the fact that we can be forgiven, that should give us joy. That should get us excited. But see, if we're living this Christian life and we're, we're basically sinful people anyway, and we're doing it unconfessing sin, unrepentant sin, what happens? We forfeit that joy because we're dealing with the conviction of God. We're dealing, we're dealing with the conviction of the Spirit on a daily basis. And I don't know about you, but I don't like to deal with the conviction of the Spirit. 
Doesn't feel good when you feel convicted over something. You say something stupid to somebody or you get mad over something silly or whatever, you know. All of a sudden, immediately, it's like conviction comes into your life and you start dealing with it. And you're like, oh, you know, they, they, they made me. You know, my thing is, well, you know, my dear, you need to understand, you know, I get mad sometimes because of this. It's you. And I and I point my finger at my wife and say, you're making me mad. That's silly. You know, I get mad at times because you lose control of whatever, you know, you're just doing or whatever it might be. And you just get irritated and sin comes in and anger creeps in. And pretty soon you're mad over some stupid thing. And after a while, you step back and you look at it and you kind of laugh. You're just like, what are we even talking about? Why are we arguing? What are we even arguing over? And so we can be forgiven. That should bring that joy into our life. Turn over to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter one. Now John begins this epistle, and uh, he's preaching basically Christ, the Word of Life. He's talking about that, and he's saying we've experienced this firsthand. He says that which was from the beginning, John one one which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So he's talking about Christ, that it was manifest. And uh, it says he's seen it, he's bore witness of it. And he shows that, it, that basically eternal life is found in that. He's preaching Christ. Now look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard and declare to you, that that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. All right? So he, he kind of wants everybody to understand that what we've seen, what we've experienced here, it's firsthand. And also they have. He says, you also have. And he says, our fellowship with us and our fellowship is with Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. See, we preach to bring people into fellowship with God. That's what we do. We, we, we teach the word of God so that people will be brought into fellowship with God. We want to get into fellowship. We want to link up with God in Christ. And we want everybody else to, to link up as well so they can be in God in Christ. We want to bring them into the family of God. That's judicial forgiveness. That's that time, point in time, where they're, they confess their sin, they come to Christ, and, and God declares them righteous. That's what we preach. In verse 4, down in verse 4, it says, And these things we write to you that what? That your joy. All of a sudden he switches. He's no longer talking about judicial forgiveness. He's talking about parental forgiveness because that's where parental forgiveness comes from, that our joy may be complete. So on one hand, we preach the gospel so that people will come into the family. But then we want them to experience and continue to experience that joy in the Christian life. <clears throat> Being saved puts you into the fellowship. But when we're obedient to the standards that God has given us and the principles that God has given us, then we have the joy in our Christian life. 
See, on the one hand, you're talking about judicial forgiveness, putting you in the fellowship, and then there's parental forgiveness that makes you know the fullness or the joy of your fellowship. And he goes on and he says, once you're in the fellowship, here's what has to happen. Look at what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, or when we confess our sins, is probably a better translation. Because as believers, we sin all the time. So when we confess our sins, it says, He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he's writing this that your joy may be, what? Full, he says. So the first thing is that if you want your joy full, if you want to keep your joy, you have to keep on confessing your sins as a believer. Because we all sin. That's the point he's trying to make. And he's saying if you're saying you don't have any sin, then you're, you know, then you really got problems because you're calling God a liar. See, the gospel brings judicial righteousness into our lives. Obedience, when we obey Christ after we're saved, after we've experienced judicial forgiveness, well, then we experience the parental forgiveness, and that brings the joy. Look over at John 13 quickly, the Gospel of John 13. We know this story. This is where Christ washes the the disciples' feet. And they're all sitting around, and basically at this point, they're pretty much self-centered individuals. They're possessive. They're indifferent to Christ. They're kind of unconcerned about his pending death that he's announced to them. They care less. They're arguing. They're proud, egotistical. They're just stuck on themselves, not typical Christian disciples at the time. In the midst of all this, the dear Lord, it says he takes his outer garment off, and he puts a towel around his waist, and he starts washing their feet. Now, I don't know if you've ever washed somebody's feet, but to me it doesn't seem like something that, you know, I wake up in the morning going, hey, I can't wait to wash somebody's feet today. Just not a, you know, not a profession, I, you know, professional foot washer. That's not something I'd want to go to school for. Okay, I mean, it grosses me out. You ladies go and let people touch your feet at the, at the uh, whatever you call it, pedicure thing. Oh, jeez. I, I'd be like laughing so much because you know you're ticklish. I don't know how they, I don't know how you do that. I really don't. But that's a very humiliating thing. It was humiliating to Christ. He was showing his humbleness, but it was also humiliating to them because then they thought, well, wait, we should be doing this to you. You're the master. You're the teacher. And all of a sudden, Christ is down there washing their feet, and he comes down to verse eight, thirteen, and Peter. We got to love Peter. He looks at the Lord and he says, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, you're you're talking Jesus Christ here in the flesh. (laughs) And and he comes to wash Peter's feet. And you can see Peter kind of maybe pull his feet back. You're never going to wash my feet. What do you think you're doing? It's not going to happen. I won't allow it. And you're talking to the, the creator of everything you say, see around us. See, Peter is convicted. At this point, he's convicted because I think that he was probably one of the proudest ones of the bunch. And he wouldn't let the Lord stoop down and do that because it would have been humiliating for the Lord, but it also would have been humiliating for him. 
And I think he was facing, somehow facing his own sin of pride in his life. They've been arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom up to this point. So they're very self-centered individuals. And he says, you're not going to wash my feet. And look at what Jesus says to him. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. See, he takes the whole physical scene and he turns it into this tremendous spiritual truth. He says to Peter, if you really, if you really want to know what is fellowship with me, if you're really that concerned about who's going to sit here and sit there and you're really concerned about your relationship with me, then you have to be part of who I am. If you want the fullness of a relationship, you better let me wash you. And Peter says, Lord, that's the case. Don't wash my feet only. But what? Wash my hands, wash my feet, here, do my underarms, do everything. Do the whole deal. Once again, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. And Jesus says to him, hey, Peter, you know, you bathed. You're not saying you stink. You obviously took a bath before you came here. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. You've got to remember back then you travel and even you go over there now, you've got a lot of dusty roads, a lot of sand blowing around, stuff like that. You know, you're, I remember going back to the hotel after a day just wearing shorts and white socks and, and you take your shoes off and there's like a brown ring around the top of your ankle where your shoe was just because of the dust that's kicked up over there. So back then, I mean, they were in the sandals and all that. I can imagine, you know, it was just a cultural thing. You washed your feet at the thing. And, and, and Peter's saying, no, you're not going to wash my feet at all. And then I'll wash all of me. And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? You know, you're, you're missing it. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean. And you are clean. Looking at all the disciples. But then he says what? But not all of you. What's he relating this to? He's saying you're all clean. You're all saved here. You're all, you're all, you've all trusted. But you know what? There's one that's part of the crowd here that hasn't crossed that line. I'm talking about Judas, obviously. There's one who's not clean. So when he washed his feet, verse 12, taking his garments and sat down, he said, uh, uh, do, do you know what I have done to you? He says, you call me teacher, you call me Lord. You say, well, for that I am. If I then, being your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, what? You also ought to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do this. See, you've already been redeemed is what he's saying in a nutshell here. But he's saying, you know what? Sometimes your feet get dirty. And you need this continual kind of cleansing thing going on. You don't need a whole bath. When you sin, you don't come back to Christ for salvation. You come to Him, what? For forgiveness. You come and say, God, thank you for your forgiveness. And you confess your sin to Him. That's what 1 John 1, 9 says. We don't have to get saved all over again. And so He's giving them this, this truth that you've already had judicial forgiveness and now you've already had your spiritual bath. You've already been clothed in, in Christ's righteousness. All that's necessary for you to do now is to wash your feet occasionally when you mess up. That's parental forgiveness. That's straightening out the relationship. The relationship's not broken. It's not severed. There's just some things that need to be dealt with. And as we confess those things, the Bible says they're washed. They're cleansed. 
the relationship is restored. The joy is brought back into the relationship. First John says that he is faithful and he's righteous to, to keep on forgiving. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, not just what we confess. I mean, it's, it's both things there. Once you've received judicial forgiveness, once you've received the forgiveness of Christ, you don't have to just you know, keep on coming back begging for him to save you again. Positional for forgiveness or positional um, uh, righteousness puts you in a right standing before God. That's settled. But how's your relationship with him? But practically, you need to be kind of cleansed every day. That's the sanctification that goes on in our life every day. So somewhere when we pray, when we, when we come to our prayer times and we, we look at the, even the, the uh, disciples' prayer here, you know, we come to the point where we say, Father, thank you for forgiving me, for making me righteous in Christ. But you know what? Thank you also for continuing to forgive me, for continuing to clothe me in the righteousness of Christ. And we, that, that's why the Bible says that we should be willing to run back to God when we mess up. Because God's not there with a big bat ready to hit us. He's there saying, hey, I know, come on, bring it on. That's why Christ died. See, there's some people that teach that you can actually get to a point in your Christian walk that you're sinless. You don't sin anymore. You're perfect. And they teach that's, that's spiritual and all this stuff. That's, that's not right doesn't happen that way. So you've got the, the judicial forgiveness. God has stretched his umbrella of Christ's righteousness over you. That's done with. But under the umbrella, you're still there. You're in, in Christ. But you know what? That doesn't mean you're not still in a sinful body in a sinful world and you're going to still deal with sin every day of your life until he takes you home. That's what Paul says. The thing that I don't want to do, what do I do? That's what I do. How many times have you come to the Lord and said, please forgive me for this. I'm sorry. And then, you know, you find yourself back there a week later. (laughs) Forgive me. And somehow we think that when we do that, God looks down with some form of impatience and some form of of kind of a judgment upon us. And and almost like he's saying, you know what? I've given you twice. You mess up one more time. (laughs) No, he's not doing that at all. I mean, I mean, especially when it's when it's just a the basic sin in our life. I mean, if you're purposely, as a believer, going out in, into unrepentant sin, I mean, there's a point where God can say, hey, you know what? I love you so much, I'm just going to take you home. Because you're such a poor testimony down there. You're not doing me any good. And that happened in the New Testament, and I believe it happens today. But the basic sin we deal with every day, God is saying, hey, bring it to me. Come to me. Confess it. Bring it to the cross. That's what it's all about. I mean, you think about David when Nathan told David, he says, David, the Lord has put away your sin. Put it away. I mean, stop and think about it. I mean, beloved, every day we deal with some form of of sin, whether it's thought or deed or whatever. And to realize that, you know what? That's been dealt with. What does that do? I mean, that was kind of the whole message of the whole weekend. That if you can get over 
If you can come to Christ and be, be forgiven and be healed, the only thing that can keep you down is really the shame of that sin. And once you realize, hey, it's forgotten by God, hopefully you can press on in your life and, and realize that, you know what, I don't have to deal with the shame of the sin anymore because God has forgotten it. And it gives you kind of a breath of fresh air in your life. David wrote in Psalm 32, he said, I acknowledge my sin before you. My iniquity I have not hidden. I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. See, when he understood the judicial element of his forgiveness, that, hey, just because I sin doesn't mean I lose my salvation. So as a result of that, I'm going to run back to God because nothing can separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So as a result of that, I'm going to run to God because I know he's the only one that can fix it. And what happens when you don't? What happens when you don't run to God, when you sin as a believer and you don't go to God and and confess it? You're miserable, aren't you? I mean, I'm miserable. If you're a believer, I know you'd be miserable. And so God says, don't don't live with that misery. I want you to have the joy of your salvation. I want you to come to me, confess that sin. Put it behind you. I've I've already forgotten about it. And I've got greater things for you. So don't be sitting around just moping about this thing you did, whatever. You know, move on. Go to him, confess it, make it right, and then move on. And I think it's, it's, it's neat because God is a God who's eager, almost excited to forgive us. We don't think of it that way. We think somehow when we sin, that God's up there pulling his hair out. Not again, you idiot, you know. No. He's saying, hey, it's okay. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ died. I already knew about this sin before he even did it. So let's just say what I say about the sin. It's bad. It stinks. Put it behind us and move on. That's his message to us. And so many times the enemy takes that as believers and he says, oh, here's a way I can keep this believer kind of inoperative. I can put this believer on the bench. I'll make him feel so bad about this sin, even though he made it right with God and the sin is behind him. I'm just going to make him feel miserable about it. And when you feel miserable, beloved, you, you can't, you're not any good to anybody. You're just not. I mean, we've all been there. We've all been at a point in our life where we've done something or we've been somewhere, done something that just grieved the heart of God. And until we dealt with it, we're just miserable. I think of Nehemiah who said this, You are a God ready to pardon He's ready to pardon. He's just waiting. He's eager to pardon us. He's eager to forgive us. Micah says this, He delights in mercy. He delights in it. And you say, well, you know what? I go back to the Lord every day saying, I did this again. Doesn't he ever get sick of it? No, he doesn't. He delights in mercy because his mercy is an act of his nature that gives him glory because only he could give you the the mercy and the forgiveness to deal with. So when you run to him and say, God, I need you to do this, it exalts him. I'm not saying that's a license for you to go out and do whatever so God can be exalted. Obviously, that's not what I'm saying. 
But I'll tell you this, Romans 5 does say where sin abounds, what happens? Grace abounds more. It abounds more. God loves to forgive us. You can take all the forgiveness that he's got and you're not even going to begin to diminish that you need and you're not going to begin to diminish the resources that he has for you. Because it's already been positionally settled. You're already saved. He doesn't have to go back and say, oh, Jesus, you've got to go down and die again because this guy sinned again. No. Hebrews tells us very clearly that when Christ went to the cross, it was done once for all. All that would ever put their faith and trust in Christ was paid for at Calvary. He'll forgive you as often as you come because his Christ, paid, Christ his son, paid the ultimate price. Dr. Barnhouse told this little illustration. He said he was talking to a college professor, and he told a story about a couple, and this is what he said. He says, the man had lived a great life of great sin and immorality, but had been converted and eventually came to marry a fine Christian woman. He confided to her the nature of his past, And in just a few words, as he had told her these things, the wife had taken his head in in, in her hands. And she drew him close to her shoulder. She kissed him gently. And she said, John, I want you to understand something very plainly. I know my Bible well, and therefore I know the, the subtlety of sin and the devices of sin that work in the human heart. I know you are a thoroughly converted man, but I know that you still have a sin nature. And that you are not yet fully instructed in the ways of God that you will be. And the devil will do all he can to wreck your Christian life. He will see to it that temptations of every kind are put in your way. And the day might come, John. I pray that it never does. But it might come when you succumb to temptation and fall into sin. And John, immediately the devil will tell you, it's no use trying. You might as well just continue on your way and continue in sin. And above all, he'll tell you not to tell me, your wife, because you'll hurt me. But John, this is what you said. I want you to know that there is a home for you in my arms. When I married you, I married your old nature as well as your new nature. And I want you to know that there is full pardon and full forgiveness in advance for any evil that ever comes into your life. Wow. That's something like God. That's something like God. He finished the the story. He says, the college professor lifted up his eyes reverently and said, my God, if anything could ever keep a man straight, that kind of forgiving love in advance would sure do it. See, that's exactly what God has done for us. That's exactly what God has done for us. When he's forgiven us and we're secure in Christ, that doesn't give us a license to go out and do whatever we want. But it does give us a joy and it does give us just a contentment in our Christian walk to realize that we're secure in Christ. See, the problem is sin. The provision is forgiveness. 
Next week, we'll look at the plea which talks about confession. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness in Christ. Lord, we thank you that your word has touched our hearts, instructed us. And Lord, we pray that as believers, first of all, that we would never forget the forgiveness that you so richly offer us. Not just at that one point in time when we came to you as a lost sinner and we cried out to you, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you saved us. At that point in time, you forgave us our sins, past, present, future. You declared us righteous in Christ. The Bible says that no condemnation can come against us for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zero. That's such a strong statement. And yet that's what your word says. And yet so many times as believers we sit around kicking ourselves, beating ourselves up, afraid to come to you when we sin because we think somehow you're just tired of it. You're weary of it. You don't want to hear it again. And that's not the case. You desire us to come to you just as a loving father would want their child who has done wrong, who has sinned, who has disobeyed. That father, that loving father would want that child to come and say, you know what, Dad, I'm sorry I blew it. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. That would restore joy in that relationship. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about that kind of parental forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that it's available to us. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who has never trusted you as their Lord and Savior, has never cried out to you. I pray before God that you would, I ask that you would just bow your knee to him. Don't be fooled into thinking that somehow you're going to squeeze by. It'll all work out. No, it won't. There'll come a day when you leave this earth and without Christ, you'll be condemned to a place called hell. Total absence of God. Total darkness. A place of punishment. God doesn't want that for you. Nobody does. You need to come to Christ. You need to just ask Him to forgive you. Just cry out to Him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't understand everything, but I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I need help. That's the first step. I pray that you do that today. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would just bless us the remainder of the weekend and give us a good time with our family and friends. And, and Lord, we ask that you would uh, just send us out of this place into a lost and dying world with a message of hope, with a message of forgiveness, with a message that says that God does pardon that he does forgive us, and he's ready and eager to do so through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.